I was raised in a church, the son of a pastor. I've pastored, it's my calling, this, this odd community known as the church. I care deeply about them and think they're significant in God's project in the world. And yet, why is it that I personally feel like I encounter the presence of God more often in a movie theater than in a church? What's happening there? Um, why am I moved to actual changes in my life and behavior by sitting with a piece of music more so than any sermon I've ever heard, you know, and so forth and so on. And that, that troubles me um, and, and also is encouraging to me because I go, wow, God is really present and active um, and everywhere, whether I'm involved or not. But then also I, I go, we as a community need to do better on, in that regard to shape our practices and our teachings and our rituals in ways that communicate in ways that are intelligible to modern people. My name is Cutter Calloway. I am a, an associate, the, the real title, the official title is, I'm an associate professor of theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm Jim Stump. This is Language of God. In our last three episodes, we explored the intersection of psychology and theology by talking to psychologists with several different specialties in the discipline. In today's episode, we talk to a theologian who's also interested in psychology, and we touch on some issues that will be familiar from the last episodes. But the conversation moves into what Cutter Calloway is known for, the realms of art and popular culture. So, of course, we talk about Game of Thrones and Westworld, Uber and Elon Musk. I grew up in an era when Christians were discouraged, if not outright prohibited, from consuming the products of popular culture. Voices from my Christian community still echo in my head, warning me that such secular entertainment might cause me to drift into a compromised faith or even atheism. Cutter has researched the actual effects of entertainment and offers some advice on how to be a Christian in this age of media, technology, and information. We're thankful to the Theopsych program at Fuller that helped make this interview possible. Let's get to the conversation. We are at the Theopsych program. Theopsych. And you're a theologian mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and also getting into psychology. Yes, burgeoning. What is it that uh, psychology is going to offer your theologizing that you couldn't do without it? If I'm being super honest, it's... Like the dog from Up who sees squirrels, <laughs> you know, look around and you go, squirrel, uh, and, and you go in that direction. Um, I, my undergrad's actually in psychology, and I started out as a business major until I took intro to business my freshman year with Eileen Burnley. And it was seared into my mind why I should not be a business major. And so I chose psychology instead. Um, and ever since then, just was captivated by um, the idea of uh, people's thoughts and feelings and behaviors, um, in part because I have weird thoughts and feelings and behaviors. Uh, and so that was always of interest to me. Um, my, my broader sort of calling, if you will, is to the local church. Um, and being a good old Southern Baptist boy, uh, I pretty much exclusively thought that meant that I should be in some sort of pastoral ministry. And so I did that for a while. Uh, it's also why I originally went to seminary. Uh, and then it was in a a pastoral context where I kept asking questions of culture and thinking that more education would help me come down with some answers to things. Again, a very foolish, uh, naive thought, but so I got a PhD um, and sort of fell in backwards to this job teaching in a seminary that happens to have 
a school of psychology at it. So um, a big part of it was just my ongoing sort of lifelong interest in psychology that I said, huh, I've always kind of wanted to continue exploring that. And now I'm here at this institution where I've got great colleagues and an entire school literally across the street where I could study more. So that's part of it. There's some just inexplicable, you know, contingencies of life that led me there. But um, it's also the case that my main area, theology and culture or sort of theological aesthetics, where you're talking about theology and art, um, there's been sort of what I would refer to as a turn to the audience of people saying we're concerned not just with these sort of theoretical explorations of art um, in the world, whether popular art or high art, but we're concerned with what people do with it. Like what, what does it mean and how does it matter in their lives? And I found, for the most part, these are all folks that have studied in like liberal arts departments. They have uh, theoretical degrees in um, philosophy or theology or whatnot, maybe even critical theory, um, which is my original area of study. But then they're offering some maybe adequate accounts of on-the-ground phenomenon, cultural phenomenon. But what they're really doing is sort of armchair psychology, armchair social psychology. And I was like, I don't think if a psychologist was doing that as like armchair theology, we would be okay with it. (laughs) So I I shouldn't be okay with me doing it. What would it look like to do a deeper dive and and understand how to be responsible with the tools, with the research, with the theoretical constructs of the discipline um, to give us insight into what's going on in people's uh, minds and how it motivates their behaviors by sitting in a movie theater, by watching, binge watching, you know, Stranger Things on Netflix, or, you know, more to, to sort of your thing, by uh, binge watching the, the last Planet Earth. So what what do these things, how does it shape people's imaginations in ways that I think uh, are really are the sort of common narratives of culture? Um, the, the, the thing that consumes most people's time, energy, and, and populates their imaginations in ways that really have direct implications for, now what do I do about climate change? What do I do about, you know, What do I think about science as a person of faith? Um, And it's just really hard. I can theorize about that all day. Um, It'd be nice to have some empirical data to to work with to say, oh, when you do this, X happens, right? So are are you starting to get any of that data? Yeah. So um, give us some of the findings. Well, (laughs) so it's it's mixed. So there are very few studies that draw direct sort of causal relationships between media consumption and some sort of behavior. Um, a most recent example is this series, uh, 13 Reasons Why on Netflix, and it's about teen suicide. Um, so there was scuttlebutt. There's a very graphic uh, suicide scene at the end of season one. I think season one is right. And there was a question when it came out, like, is this, is this, sort of glorifying suicide and the telling of it. What, what is this doing? Is it is it triggering people who might be prone to suicidal thoughts? Is it encouraging it? Um, and so a, a whole sort of uh, subculture of a mixture of some pop psychology with some hard data emerged where people were saying suicide rates went up after the airing of this episode, right? Well, that's scary. That's a really scary thought. Is it even true? Um, And so another group of uh, psychologists and folks got involved with the producers of the show. Um, And actually just last week I read that um, they've decided they're about to air the the next season um, is coming out. And so they've gone back, the showrunners have gone back and they are actually editing the finale episode of the original season, taking out the the sort of 
really the most visceral graphic scene um, and reproducing it so that new viewers to the show won't encounter that. And so that raises a lot of questions that are uh, aesthetic. What does it mean to be an artist um, and feeling like you need or you have a social responsibility? Um, what data are you drawing on? <laughs> Is it enough to say there's this direct causal relationship between suicides and the timing of a show? Um, and then who do you trust in terms of what what do you do as an artist moving forward? Okay, so I say all that because those are studies that I didn't have a direct hand in, um, but are increasingly gonna come up and important that I wanna sort of be able to run on my own and uh, generate some stuff, not just for the broader public, but then specifically for people of faith who are interested in this, whether you're a, a youth pastor working with youth um, that might say, is it helpful, is it constructive to walk a group of teenagers through a series like this to talk about suicide? Well, if the data shows it's better just to talk about it <laughs> and not show visceral scenes of it, well, then maybe you don't show it. But on the other hand, it might raise some really important uh, entry points uh, for that pastor that are healthy and constructive. So that's that's some of the, uh, the stuff that I'm interested in. The church has always had an uh, uneasy relationship to popular culture and to things like movies and television and such, at least my generation, and I'm not <laughs> that much older than you, no, a little no, bit. No. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you have conceived of this, how you've tried to help the church understand what a good and healthy relationship is to consuming popular media like this? Yeah, um, I am biased and weird. Um, I have an odd or eclectic sort of pastoral background. Um, it needs to be said, I think, before I answer the question. So um, I helped plan a church in college, and we're Gen Xers, which, you know, we we hated authority and hierarchy and institutions, but we loved Jesus. We also loved coffee and rock and roll. If you mix all that into a blender and imagine a church, that's what we did. Um, so early on, I'm like playing in the, in the middle of our services, uh, Pearl Jam and Tool and Metallica as like a, a, a starting point for dialogue for our, our community of faith with these sort of broader pop cultural productions and asking the question, how does this reflect or represent deeper impulses in society that we need to be conversant with? Um, we soon after that moved into a, a little old mom and pop movie theater that had just gone out of, out of business because the big Cineplex came in. And so I started the youth ministry there in theater five. So I don't actually know how to do youth ministry without a big screen. Like I, I don't, it's hard for me to even conceive of it um, or to deliver a sermon without knowing there's this sort of hovering ever present backdrop um, inviting this kind of engagement with popular culture. Um, so it was baked into our our worship practices. It was baked into the way we imagined doing ministry um, was this engagement with pop culture. Okay, so that's sort of the one of my like keystones for how I've thought about it. But then as I went to other uh, ministry settings and that wasn't the the same context, I I didn't realize until then that it's like, oh, this is a little more fraught than I realized. People, people don't just naturally incorporate a film. I think I told you I... I screened um, a, a small clip from Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth early on, and, one, and people were threatening to leave the church, just not even because they disagreed with what's in the film, but that I dared show Al Gore's face, you know, on the big screen. So um, it's been a learning process, and in fact, uh, I often say I'm, I'm a seminary faculty because I'm learning how to be a pastor again. I, I, I failed in so many ways along this very line. How do you shepherd a community? Um, in a way that uh, encourages them to engage the broader culture and specifically pop culture in a healthy and constructive way. Not in a way that just purely demonizes, um, but instead says, 
what's God up to in the world and how can I participate? And so I think the thing that I've come to when I go, whether I'm teaching at a church or guest speaking, I'm going to a couple actually this weekend talking about film, like what, what do we do with film? And I start with kind of this uh, C.S. Lewis quote that I love, and it's from Experimenting Criticism. And he says, look, listen, and get yourself out of the way. It's sort of his approach to any text, right? Anything that you want to, to give a hearing to. And so this is actually hard for most evangelical Christians in the U.S. is to stop and be silent and put yourself at the service of the thing, whatever the thing is, the film, the, the book, the, the piece of media. Because it seems like you're divesting yourself of some power in the relationship, and it's because you are. Like you're, you're submitting humbly to this other thing to let it do what it's supposed to do. So any kind of art or media is supposed to do something to you. And if you don't let it, if from the get-go you say, I'm putting up a guard, I'm going to you know, think critically and be aware of Satan's presence, you know, it, it's, it, it's going to be a sort of a stillborn experience. Um, if you allow art to be art and to, to challenge you, to critique you, to, to submit in that way, then after giving it a hearing, you can respond. Um, and I think that's the, the most simple and basic way that I've learned to say, here's how we might posture ourselves towards culture. But it's also a real challenge to convince people. I mean, one, just the length of my answers right now, like uh, who am I, to, you know, <laughs> I'm a guilty as charged to not talk, right? To listen, um, to listen intently and to allow the other to speak first. If we have any sort of chance of, of having our voice heard, you know, saying first and foremost, we want to genuinely hear mm. from you. And that's sort of the posture I recommend. Mm. How I've, ex yeah, I've not figured out exactly how to convince everyone to do that. So, yeah, I'm going to channel some of the voices in my head from my youth, yeah. which was during the time of rock and roll music is oh, evil yeah. because there's yeah. backwards masking oh, and, yeah. and uh, not going to movies. And, you know, different Christian communities obviously had different uh, different kinds of rules in that way. But one of the big arguments that was made to my generation and uh, the people in my community was the Apostle Paul saying, whatever is true and whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, think about such things. Yeah. Can you make an argument, though, perhaps for thinking about, for the viewing and then responding to the ugly Oh, the yeah. more difficult, the painful, what place might that have in the Christian imagination and in the Christian witness? Well, that is my favorite verse because it's used exactly as you described. But what was the very first word that you used? Think on whatever is true. Well, truth is ugly a lot of times. It, it, the, the cross, let's say the, you know, <laughs> the most true thing that has happened in our narrative now, you could also say the resurrection is the most true, whatever. But you don't get resurrection yeah, without you don't. the exactly. cross. <laughs> like this is an ugly, ugly truth. And it's a horrific truth. And the gospel invites us to not just see it and acknowledge it, but to dwell on it. You know, we have a good Friday service, even that, like we call it good in light of the resurrection. But it's that Friday is an ugly, ugly event. And it's profoundly true in a, in a cosmic sense, right? And then you, you can, there's all sorts of lowercase t truths that are, that are equally, um, I think, applicable there, that, that the truth of the horrors of war, the truth of, well, or even something as simple as the truth of a marriage, right, involves um, the, the deep woundedness and pains and failures of any spouse and addressing and acknowledging those. Pretending like they don't exist is actually an untrue account of the marriage relationship, a robust marriage relationship anyway. If there was nothing dark or ugly or, or seedy about it, 
um, you would say, well, it's kind of an immature relationship. Something about that is always in play. There's a, a scholar, her name is Cecilia Gonzalez Andrew. She wrote this book, Bridge to Wonder. And she talks about um, the, the ugly and the beautiful, right? That, that the true, the good, and the beautiful are sort of these transcendental categories. Um, and she said, often we think of the ugly as if that's the opposite of the beautiful. And then she said, well, that's not true. Often ugliness prompts us to turn to the beautiful. And so this is how she figures, uh, talks about the cross, for example. And she said, the opposite of beauty is an ugliness. The opposite of beauty is glamour. And she said, so there's a, a sort of a facile notion of beauty that really is self-absorbed and turns in towards itself. That's the opposite of beauty. Ugliness often pushes us toward capital B beauty. And in that sense, uh, what is true can be very, very ugly. Um, and in my mind, that's why you actually need beauty because that's one of the ways you discern how do we know if this ugliness actually is leading us towards truth is if it uh, spins outward instead of inward. Because there's also a lot of ugliness that really is just crass and ugly and unhelpful. Um, and uh, that too, I think we need to guard against. So it's not like all ugliness is good. Mm. Maybe there were some the rock bands out there that were really trying to manipulate your mind <laughs> and and get Satan to to inhabit your soul. Um, but, you know, that's that's how I come at it. There's an argument sometimes about whether art uh, is a reflection of culture or whether culture is driving uh, art. And I think pretty clearly both of those yeah. are going on, right? Yeah. And in that regard, it's uh, interesting to look at the many different forms of popular media today and to see a kind of longing or a searching, a, a sort of inchoate spirituality yep. that might not use the same sort of Christian terms or Christian theology that, that we use, but we see we see that reflected in, uh, in media today. Are there some, uh, this has also been called kind of the golden age of television with uh, <laughs> Netflix and oh, yeah. Amazon and yeah. lots of lesser lesser known platforms. Are there some of the products of popular culture today that you think do a particularly good job of capturing that sense of longing for uh, an authentic spiritual Oh, yeah. Experience? Um, I mean, depending upon how you define it, it could almost be anything and everything. I mean, there, there, there is an argument that can be made, um, I think that cultural productions are an expression of any of our sort of core impulses, right? Um, and then any of those sort of core human drives, in my mind, are drives that are inherently theological. Okay, so setting that aside, if it's more broadly spiritual, there's a few that I think are really interesting. One. Um, is the good place? Uh, do you know this show? Yes. Um, now it's one of pretty, the only ones yeah. with the philosopher as yeah, the main exactly. character. Yeah, um, exactly. And it's explicitly dabbling in this. And it's and it's it's a pretty courageous show in terms of upending the sort of uh, generic expectations that a lot of sitcoms would have. Um, it's it's raising questions of morality, the hereafter, if that's a thing, um, the ethics that you know, the, the, even the mechanics of post-life life, right? Um, it's, so it's interesting in terms of the the conversation it raises and that it's sort of a silly, winsome, comedic thing. You know, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, I find that really interesting. Others uh, are, uh, you know, you, you can't get around uh, Game of Thrones. Um, and I find just fascinating the, the sort of myth-making components of contemporary media. And this is right now, now again, 50 years from now, we may look back and say Game of Thrones doesn't hold up, you know, but still for now, it was a significant moment where it, it gathered a, 
a, a significant minority of people in the Western, you know, media consuming audience that said this is tapping into something. Um, and what I, I find fascinating about it is it gets a lot of flack, rightly, for like so, some misogyny and objectification of women. Um, and there are a number of women that are my colleagues in sort of religious studies, critical studies uh, sphere that love it. And they're fans of it. And they're reading against the grain of it in terms of what it suggests. But it certainly is this kind of myth-making show in a cultural context where we don't have a, a common story anymore. So what happens in a society when you no longer have a, a sort of shared narrative that the Western world has had for a long time until, let's say, 50 years ago? And I'm referring to the biblical text there. Now what you see is this upcrop of 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 myths um, that are, are to be kind of primary orienting tools to how you s understand the rest of your life in the world. And so, and it's incredibly violent and incredibly dark and um, the, the moral, the ethics of it are complex and ambiguous. Um, and so to me, that's one that really demonstrates and expresses where people are at spiritually um, or, and or spiritually might even be overstating it um, in terms of meaning structures, right? Um, but it's one that I think you just can't get around. Um, then there's some others. So I oh, have, yeah, before yeah. you leave that, I have to ask if you were satisfied with the ending of it. Or oh, not. so here's my uh, my one confession. I have a book called Watching TV Religiously. Um, I teach classes on theology and TV. I have never seen an episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I've never. And I, I'm shamed. To, so like I've seen, I see tons of, the problem is that you can't watch everything. So that's one thing. And then by the time it became a thing, so many seasons had gone by, it's daunting. So I, every day I'm like, I got to start it. I got to start it. So I don't know. It remains to be seen. Um, and uh, But I know it's a very divisive. So my read of it all is purely on the reception side of like, I'm gotcha. watching people find so much meaning. And I'm like, what's going on with this show? It's part of my like, well, should I watch it? Um, I guess I need to. It really is uh, a burden of mine. That, um, But now I was just talking to some friends. It's like, I've got... Uh, Westworld season two. I've got a. I, I There's have too much. That's yeah. what I mean. This golden I've, age of yeah. television has a uh, has its curses I mean, with it too. I've written on Stranger Things, so I'm still trying to get through season three of that. Um, there's a new show called Fleabag that's supposed to be amazing. Um, what's some others? Um, oh, uh, a Handmaid's Tale. I'm behind on. Um, another, I think, really interesting, you know, spiritual, uh, Westworld, did I say Westworld? Yeah. Um, Westworld, uh, um, True Detective, I've I got to get the third season of that. So uh, <laughs> needless to say, um, <laughs> Big Little Lies with my wife, I'm watching right now. Um, so, but in each of those, in their own different ways, um, really are uh, profoundly spiritual uh, TV shows. And um, some of the interesting parts of it, I think, all the money is going now towards quote unquote, television in whatever format that looks, um, not so much Hollywood, uh, we're making films. So the talent, the money, uh, the writers, uh, the producers, everything. You'll still get your um, Avengers and whatnot that, that hit the big screens, but tons of really amazing, talented people now are making television and that's part of why it's the golden age, but also why we're getting this influx of really interesting stories that are told over sort of long form um, which allows both viewers to kind of sit with it for longer, for storytellers to develop a story more. Um, and to me, it's like, well, that's a really interesting model. Hmm, where have we seen that before? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Episodic stories <laughs> that are told over the long haul that become sort of taken up as the mythic underpinnings of a society. And so again, even if you think on sort of a meta level about television in the golden age right now, 
really fascinating that these are now the we're producing the sort of shared texts that will become um, the resources for our spirituality moving forward. of God listeners, here at BioLogos, we think that asking questions is a worthwhile part of any faith journey. We hope this podcast helps you to think through long-held questions and consider new questions, but you probably have other questions we haven't covered yet. That's why we want to take this quick break to tell you about the Common Questions page on our website. You'll find questions like, how could humans have evolved and still be made in the image of God? How should we interpret the Genesis flood account? And what created God? each with thoughtful and in-depth answers written in collaboration by scientists, biblical scholars, and other experts. Just go to biologos.org and click the Common Questions tab at the top of the page. Back to the show. So Biologos is an organization that is uh, interested in science and faith. We've been talking mostly about faith here and in culture. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how science is represented in in popular culture and what kinds of effects that has on audiences. And I'm not even worried here if you want to spill over into science fiction and how how, uh, that's related. Um, You know, I love science fiction. I've always been a science fiction fan, um, in part because... One, it's interesting that it always has its own sort of religious overtone, sometimes explicitly. The amount of science fiction shows that tap religion, um, you know, whether they, they start meeting gods or godlike structures or we meet another society that itself has created a religion or I mean, like all of those examples are fascinating. So um, it becomes a really interesting way to explore the here and now um, in at least a distant or indirect enough way that it's accessible to us. So I think that's one thing sci-fi adds. But then also when you add this technology side, and I think right now, one of the things that gets confused, both in media and in most people's minds, is when you say science, I think a lot of times people mean technology. Um, Not always, but it's not always clear to me what people are talking about when they go, ah, well, science says. I'm like, well, who, are you talking about like a scientist? Are you talking about some dude that created an app and has used an algorithm, you know, what are you saying? Um, and not that the guy who created the app isn't a scientist, but, you know, and so, um, so is Elon Musk a scientist? <laughs> well, he was just presented some like string thing. Uh, did, did you see this? Mm-hmm. That he's going to insert into the brain. It's the, the breadth of a, have a human hair um, that will allow us to sort of remotely control um, AI and, and sort of interface with AI. He's very into this, right? Well, he's an entrepreneur. He's in conversation with scientists, I think, as a scientific mind. But is that science or what, what is that, right? So I do think in terms of uh, media representations and then sort of the common, common person's understanding of it, that gets blurred. But when it comes to sci-fi, that's one place where I go, I think we were talking about uh, the Westworld, right? So when we talk about AI, for example, a lot of times in our minds, our imaginations have been populated with these stories and movies and stuff that really skew towards, you know, uh, data from Star Trek or the very um, human looking yeah, androids. So it's, we're talking about creating, you know, agents that look and talk and act like humans that are indiscernible. It's the Turing test type of thing. Can we create this thing that's indiscernible from humans? Um, and then if we do, what kind of personhood ought we to grant it? And at what stage, you know, that sort of thing. And it seems like the science um, behind all of this is a little bit different. So there's the development of neural networks, et cetera, et cetera, AI technology, machine learning, 
which I, at least my read of it is that it's, it's skewing far more towards um, like big data. The question for me that since we're at this theo psych thing, so psychological science, which is really interesting to me is how big data is leveraged right now in media in particular to manipulate behavior. So now for the first time, this is one of the downsides of the golden age of TV because of the way these platforms uh, distribute media. It's, you know, a very, <laughs> a very short step from, am I choosing to watch this or has it been chosen for me? Is this actually a super popular show that I could say everyone's watching? Or is this a customized view of the world that some invisible force out there has dictated for me? And all of that setting aside, what is it trying to get me to buy? <laughs> like, and, and that's where the, the psychology of it is really interesting and has some really serious implications. For example, um, you have people developing driverless technology and we've all as a society thought, well, the scientists and technologists will s figure it out. Well, that is fine, except you have to program into a car when it comes to a crosswalk and it's going through a green light and a kid runs into the middle of the street, do you uh, adjust to save the passengers or the kid? That's an ethical decision that someone has to, you know, make ones and zeros, make the computer do something, right? Um, that's a fascinating conversation that the science suggests, or we, we want to give in to science will answer it, when in fact you need an ethicist um, in the room who is science aware and is science engaged enough to say, actually, <laughs> um, you know, this is what's going to result from that. And so um, I think some of the, uh, the kind of lay or popular descriptions of it grant a whole lot of authority to, quote unquote, the sciences. Um, and so some of these like deep, intractable questions we need to answer that are really only philosophical, ethical, or even religious questions um, are calling for representatives from those traditions to answer. A lot of times we fall into this you know, science of the gaps mentality, like, oh, well, science will figure it out or science will answer it. And I'm like, I don't think it will. And that seems to be the way it's often presented in science fiction, yeah, where yeah. in the future or in other yeah. societies, it looks as though science is the one that solved all the problems to make the yeah. society work the way it is. Which has just absolutely the, the extrapolation of this, uh, uh, this secularization thesis, right? That that long for a long time has been the assumption that given enough time and modernization and development, Every society will eventually be in a post-religious society. And the fact is, there's something about humans that absolutely resists that. It, it's just uh, empirically false um, in the terms of, of modern life. There is more religion globally now than there ever has been. Um, religion has dispersed and changed and morphed, but in fact is cropping up in all of these places that we never anticipated, but it's certainly not diminished. There's not less religion. <laughs> uh, if anything, there's more and more opportunities to express it. So yeah, to, to punt to this sort of vague notion of science will fix it or science will replace it, um, I think is a bit naive, but it is certainly handed to us as if that that is in fact the case. Mm -hmm. Um, the other side of it too is the, uh, the, the psychology of it. And, um, when, when you're talking about manipulating behavior, I think that's the other side where you don't get a lot of that in media representations and the, the active leveraging of psychological dynamics. No one, nobody thinks that I could go to gym and manipulate your behavior by simply, you know, introducing you to certain ads, right. Or certain sort of Facebook feeds, but. When you're talking about 7 billion people, 
Um, all you have to do is manipulate half of a percentage of one little section of it, and that's a pretty significant number. And when you have big data to show, I can do this thing, and that influences that small bit. Now you're talking about I'm influencing 300 million people at once to do what they may or may not be wanting to do. Um, so f the way we consume, the way we interact with each other, the way we develop relationships, down to um, the jobs we take. So I don't know if you uh, read anything about Uber and their use of um, their app-based uh, formation of their drivers. Have you? Do you know anything mm -hmm. about this? So using sort of insights into human psychology, they messed with the interface that drivers, Uber drivers have. And so one thing they did was um, as you're bringing your current passenger to their, their stop, you already get your next group of people pinging. Used to, you didn't until you dropped them off, then you would get, here are my next people. Well, they found, because of big data um, and algorithms, that all they have to do is give you it before you drop them off, and you, your propensity is to not take a break and constantly and not stop and not, you know, because again, it's incentivized to go get them. And so they were, drivers were going 15 hours without even like going to the bathroom or eating. Um, they were staying up way too long. And, and all of this was being encouraged because Uber had the data to show we make these small little changes and we can modify our driver behavior in ways that produce huge economic windfalls for us as a company, but are potentially catastrophic um, for the driver and without their awareness of it, right? They weren't even, they didn't sign off and say, yes, we agree to, to, to be manipulated this way. They just did it. And so there was even a, a lawsuit at one uh, point with the drivers sort of raised hell. But even that gets back to sort of gig economy and technology and science, all informing um, anything from what TV we watch to what jobs we take to what stuff we buy. And that's where I go, whoo, we need to be better at science, not, not worse. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, if we could bring this around back around um, where we started with some of your your own uh, work and research and understanding audiences and their responses to these, but can I then even turn that a little bit more personal? Uh, because quite often as researchers, we have those subjects out there we're looking at, but we ourselves are one of those. Can you talk at all about your own responses and how it has informed, strengthened your own faith, your practice oh, yeah. of that, and how uh, media has contributed yeah. to that or art in general has sure. contributed to that? Well, I've long been driven by, well, a couple of motivating instincts. And one is I, I am surrounded by people in my life that have either deconverted or are not religious or people of faith, right? And sometimes I stop and I go, Am I the common denominator here? Did I, did I cause what's happening? So that's one kind of funny thing I think. And then the second is, what's weird about me? Um, I obviously I've had my dark nights of the soul. I'm constantly questioning and doubting and struggling with whether any of this is legitimate at all. And by this I mean the Christian faith. And I did so as a pastor, uh, as a young kid. It was always born into me of saying like, wait a minute you pastor, you know, Jane or Joe said X about the Bible. What about all the other stuff the Bible says that totally contradicts it? Or what about this? You know, like I w it was just somehow part of my personality to ask these questions to essentially bring my doubts to the tradition and to the text. Um, and so I think that's part of why I've, I've held on to my faith, but it's still in the, the context that we inhabit. Um, I say in other contexts that all doubters are actually shot through with belief but all believers are actually doubters um, in the current context. It's impossible to, to live in a contemporary sort of 
post-Enlightenment scientific world and not stop occasionally and go, okay, wait a minute. Is any of this <laughs> legitimate uh, in terms of there being something beyond the here and now? Um, and so that is probably the primary thing that drives me. And then I start going, I was raised in a church, the son of a pastor. I've pastored. It's my calling, this this odd community known as the church. I care deeply about them and think they're significant in God's project in the world. And yet, why is it that I personally feel like I encounter the presence of God more often in a movie theater than in a church? What's happening there? Um, why am I moved to actual changes in my life and behavior by sitting with a piece of music more so than any sermon I've ever heard? You know, and so forth and so on. And that that troubles me um, and, and also is encouraging to me because I go, wow, God is really present and active um, in everywhere, whether I'm involved or not. But then also as a, as a former pastor and current, you know, overly eager volunteer at my, <laughs> my current church, they probably don't like me too much. But I, I go, we as a community need to do better on, in that regard to shape our practices and our teachings and our rituals in ways that communicate in ways that are intelligible to modern people. And I think we, we're struggling right now to that. Not every church everywhere, but there is a disconnect between how we understand the world, most people, on a day-to-day -day basis, and then what they receive walking in the doors of a church, let's say, on a Sunday morning. So that disconnect motivates me a lot. Uh, and so because it's driven by this uh, intractable doubt and it's also driven by this these profound experiences I have in and through art, that's what drives me to say, well, what's going on in art that might offer us hooks for talking about spirituality and God in a post-Christian, post-secular, really, society? And because the psychological sciences and sciences are held up as, as authorities in culture right now that I think are, are good, that, I think, offers a really great um, common language to talk about okay, what's going on psychodynamically or neurophysiologically when you're sitting in that theater and you're in, in, inviting your <laughs> theaters are a good example. Movies are because to even engage a film, you have to accept there is a, a narrative presence that extends beyond the theater in which you sit that informs the story that you are finding meaningful. So for it to even work, you're basically saying there is a meta narrative here and when people get upset about, for example, the end of Game of Thrones, it's because they have expectations for how stories should be told. Um, they're rejecting a the meta narrative. They're saying, no, no, that doesn't operate. And so you go, well, why do you care? Why does it matter to you as a, a human and the way we in encounter and consume stories? Why does it matter that this person is has integrity or is consistent, this supposed narrator that doesn't actually exist? That's a really good starting point for a conversation about meta narratives, stories, um, imagination, um, and how that taps into something deeply human, I think. Mm. In closing, I wonder if you might give uh, any advice to a couple of different groups of people. One, perhaps producers of art. And in both of these cases, I'm thinking of people who are concerned about the church for the kingdom, uh, more broadly speaking. So for people who are producers of art in ways that, that might help to uh, advance the kingdom. And uh, the second group of people is the consumers of that <laughs> art and how they yeah. might do so responsibly and in ways that yeah. might be beneficial to the kingdom. Yeah, I um, could say a lot, um, but I think to sort of make a connecting point between both of those, uh, right now I think the best advice I have 
Um, cause at Fuller, we get tons of people who are working in the industry and are also in seminary. Um, and so they're all asking this very question. And so this is somewhat a cobbling together of multiple people's, you know, the way they've tested it out. So I watch them and I go, okay, you make all the mistakes and then I'll <laughs> wax eloquent about what people should do. So I think one of the main things of people who are producing art for the sake of the kingdom is to say, it's very important to know your um, purpose, right? And, and your audience. So in my younger days, I would sort of like huh, hold my nose up at say, you know, Christian films, um, a God's not dead, for example, like, oh, this is just bad art and blah, 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 blah. Well, similar to like a song that we might write um, in a church community that's designed for us as a group of believers around a certain sort of confession to sing and encourage and animate our faith, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a beautiful use of art to say, I want to sing this song with people who are a part of this community in honor and worship of the God that we confess. Fantastic. If I think that creation ought to be sold to a mass market as a means and a tool for evangelizing, that's a different thing. I don't think those are the same thing. I don't, if you're now creating music to ev evangel, I'm putting this in air quotes since my podcast, evangelizing or spreading the gospel, well, hold on, that's, that's different. And so, uh, you know, let's say it's a film, you make this movie, it's fantastic if you wanna say, I wanna encourage the faith of Christians. And so it's for Christians, it's gonna be to a Christian audience and we're gonna sell it to Christians and it has to be funded somehow, so here you go. But then on the consumer side, or if my calling is, I just, I wanna make great films, right? Great cinema. You still need to be committed to um, your audience and your story. So what is my, does my story have integrity? Can I tell the story well? Whether it's visual art or music or film, let's say. Um, then as consumers, it's the same thing. We need to be careful not to mistake, um, I'm picking on God's Not Dead, but it's because it was successful, quote unquote, uh, at the box office. They spent almost nothing on it and it made $30 million, which is not amazing, but very good. Um, and the reason it made $30 million is because uh, a bunch of Christians and churches bought out theaters and bought tickets, right? And so it made a bunch of money. We should not mistake that for cultural prominence, cultural acceptance, um, that somehow we have evangelized the culture in meaningful and significant ways, that I should fund that project and projects like it because I think I'm, I'm meeting my calling to be salt and light in the world. It's fine if you wanna fund the project, it's fine if you wanna uh, uh, pour into it and go see it as many times as you want, but we just need to be careful when we consume that in that way that we're not mistaking it for this other missional imperative that we got. And I think right now that's the mistake we're making, um, both in what we produce and how we consume it. Um, it's not that there shouldn't be a God's Not Dead, it's that we need to be really distinct about what the purpose and function of that is when we do make it and consume it. Good. Thanks for talking to us today, Cutter. Thank you for having me, it was fun. Language of God is produced by BioLogos. It has been funded in part by the John Templeton Foundation and more than 300 individuals who donated to our crowdfunding campaign. Language of God is produced and mixed by Colin Hugerworth. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are produced out of the BioLogos offices in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you have questions or want to join in a conversation about this episode, find the link in the show notes for the BioLogos forum. Find more episodes of Language of God on your favorite podcast app or at our website, biologos.org, 
where you will also find tons of great articles and resources on faith and science. Finally, if you're enjoying the show and want to help us out, leave a review on iTunes. We love hearing from you and it helps other people find the show. Thanks. Thanks.